Hello and welcome, welcome to, to the, the Europeans. Europeans. The Europeans welcome you. You are welcome. <laughs> this was our terrible attempt at doing a simple Bauhaus introduction to the podcast. Well, it was your idea. Yes. Okay. Shame me, but it was your terrible execution. <laughs> um, but right. it's because this week, in celebration of the centenary of Bauhaus, we're going to be talking about the legendary interdisciplinary art school that existed for a brief moment between the two world wars in Germany. And they were, like, famous for having beautiful, clean, simple designs in all different types of art, which I think we could argue, if Bauhaus was still in existence today, podcasting would probably be a diff- uh, its own branch of the Bauhaus school. Our podcast is not at all run on Bauhaus principles. It's like the messiest podcast you've ever heard, though. Yeah, that is true. The Bauhaus founders would just be frowning at us right now. You may know what Bauhaus is, you may not. I have to say, both Katie and I were a little bit ignorant about what Bauhaus was, but... Um... I, th- I thought it was a fun on Microsoft Word. Oh, well, they did have a font. Oh, was that actually their font? Yeah, there, there was a graphic designer who, uh, a famous graphic designer, I can't remember who, who created like what was meant to be like this new universal font. Ah. It's really clean and beautiful. Mm. Um, but yeah, today we're going to be speaking to an artist called Henry Isaacs, who grew up surrounded by some of these rather larger than life characters who set up this incredible school. Um, And we'll be chatting about everything Bauhaus with him later, his memories of being surrounded by them as children and how Bauhaus has influenced him as an artist. Mm -hmm. But before we get there, I should ask you how you are, Katie. Let's drop the simple Bauhaus thing. We can't keep this going for the whole podcast. It's not very linear, is it? No, it's not very linear. Oh, dear. Uh, I'm very well, thank you. My bag is packed. I am going to be on my way to Brussels as soon as we've hung up the Skype machine to find out if we won a prize, which we haven't. We haven't won it. This is going to be like last time we got nominated for a prize and I learned how to say thank you for the flowers in Dutch, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) And it turned out to be extremely presumptuous. And now I've learned how to say that for no reason. Bedankt for the bloemen. But also it's quite presumptuous that if you win that they're also going to give you flowers. (laughs) massive bouquet of flowers and one of those giant checks like on the lottery uh, but anyway no um we're probably not gonna win but it's still exciting that i get to see brussels for the first time in my life which is very cool and i'm going to be going to do some interviews for our very special episode which we should tell people about now i think okay dominic and i have taken on the challenge of trying to explain how the european parliament works without boring you all to death Um, I do think it's doable. So on May 21st, just before the European elections, this episode is going to be coming out. It's going to be like the explainer to end all explainers. And I promise you, it won't be boring. For this episode, by the way, we would really like to speak to someone who is running to be an MEP for the first time. If there is someone interesting in your part of Europe who meets that description, give us a shout because we would love to talk to them. Yeah, good luck, Katie trying to have fun in Brussels. People are so like down and out about Brussels, aren't they, on Twitter? There is a oh, Brussels, get out of there as quickly as possible. So I hope it doesn't swallow you up and like turn you into a dementor. People who actually live there sometimes have quite nice things to say about it. Good beer and chips, obviously, and like nice museums, cool kind of cultural venues. I'm not shaming the city itself. I think I'm more shaming the institutions within the city or or the bubble, the Brussels bubble. The Brussels bubble. So this is going to be my first trip into the bubble. I am very excited about it. I hope you get out safely. How are you? What's going on in Amsterdam? You're a little hungover, I hear. No. Shame, Don't, Katie, shame. You can't shame me. I've got to go and sing an opera today. Oh. Um, 
I am not hungover, but it was King's Day yesterday. We're recording on Sunday. King's Day is, if you don't know, is a big national holiday celebrating the King's birthday in the Netherlands. And I actually escaped Amsterdam because I hate big groups of drunk people. And that is what Amsterdam turns into. But fortunately, it was raining quite a lot. So most of the drunk people stayed inside. Literally rained on their parade. Yeah, it literally did. And I shouldn't celebrate that. That's really grumpy of me. But hey, um, yeah, I escaped. I went to Eindhoven to see my in-laws and to have some nice quiet time hiding away. But I did come back in the evening and have a little drink. And I haven't drunk for ages. And apparently uh, apparently I'm a lightweight now. I mean, you always were, really. That's very true. But hey, should we get on with the show instead of talking about our respective drinking habits like we are now doing every week, which (laughs) isn't very interesting for listeners. Yes, we should. Yes, later we're going to be talking to Henry about Bauhaus. I'm also going to be talking to someone with one of the coolest jobs in Europe, Kurt Overberg. He is the artistic director of the Ancienne Belgique music venue in Brussels. And he's going to be giving me some tips for like bands to name drop into conversations so that I can pretend that I am young and with it. Uh, that is all coming up after. Who's had a good week, Dominic? It's been a good week for Volodymyr Zelensky in the most surreal example of life imitating art. The actor comedian won the presidential election in Ukraine. It's surreal because he is famous for starring in a TV series, Servant of the People, as a school teacher who almost accidentally becomes president after a video of him ranting about corruption goes viral. In real life, Zelensky won a huge 73% of the vote, and an optimistic view of Zelensky's victory comes from the fact that he managed to win all regions apart from Lvov, suggesting that he overcame the traditional divisions between the east and the west of the country, which is no mean feat. He ran a really populist campaign that was incredibly light on policy details. So it's Mm. not really clear exactly what he'll do now that he has the top job in Ukraine. Um, And it's not really clear who else it's a good week for within the Ukraine or actually within the whole geopolitical landscape. His campaign shunned the normal trappings of a presidential trail, with most of it taking place online and depending on viral videos and stand-up routines. He has therefore received quite a small amount of scrutiny as he shunned interviews. But that said, his campaign was essentially one about cleaning up politics in Ukraine and removing the grip of oligarchs on the country, a platform that is bizarrely similar to the platform that his TV character runs on. Mm. It's really quite strange. But many are sceptical about his calls for cleaning up politics after he was accused of having close ties to and certainly received a lot of support from a controversial oligarch, Kolomoisky, which I've probably pronounced wrong, sorry, but I don't feel too bad because he's a billionaire. That's okay, isn't it? I'm not sure he'll take it. Yeah, he's a billionaire who currently lives in Israel but is of Ukrainian descent and he runs the channel One Plus One, which is the TV channel that produced the show that made President-elect Zelensky famous. And also the TV channel devoted a huge amount of airtime to Zelensky during the campaign. The guy he is replacing, Poroshenko, is a billionaire himself who promised change five years ago when he was elected. And the change was arriving far too slowly for many of the people who voted for him as Ukraine's economy is still struggling and the level of poverty in Ukraine is pretty atrocious. So is this election good or bad for Russia or for the EU? It's not really clear. There doesn't seem to be any consensus around this yet, other than the fact that he is ostensibly pro-European and critical of Putin's Russia. 
And he said in his victory speech um, to all of the countries of the post-Soviet Union, look at us, anything is possible. There is certainly a feeling of flushing out the political system with this election, seeing as he's an absolute outsider with zero political experience. But as we know from other obvious examples, promises to drain the swamp aren't always what they seem. That said, many liberal Western commentators have looked at this victory optimistically, comparing it favorably to Russia, where a victory like this from a total outsider seems almost impossible, even once Putin steps down in 2024, if he does, as the constitution demands of him. Um, But yeah, he's got a bit of a difficult task ahead of him as someone who has no political experience, and Ukrainians have high expectations for him. According to a poll from the Kiev International Institute of Sociology, 39% of Ukrainians believe he's going to lower their utility bills, which is not really within his powers. I mean, there are some things that are within his powers, like he can speed up investigations into corruption, mainly by appointing the general prosecutor. So that's an area in which we should keep a close eye on him to see whether he really is serious about cleaning up the system or whether his oligarch supporter will expect some kind of thanks for having helped him rise into this extraordinary position of power. So, good week for Volodymyr Zelensky, but we're not quite sure who else it's a good week for as a result. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting that um, just Googling around it, I saw a whole bunch of headlines from smart people saying like, this is great news for Russia. And like, this is really bad for Russia. So it's like, which one is it? He speaks Russian though, right? So that would make him maybe someone who is, I don't know, in a better position to negotiate with Putin when it comes to the war in the East, maybe. Yeah, well, whether or not, I read an article this week, I think on Al Jazeera, someone saying that actually it's not really in Putin's interest to have a Ukrainian president who is willing to negotiate. Like for Putin, it's actually better for the Ukrainian government to feel like it's in opposition to Russia. It's like easier to have something to push back against um, than to have someone who wants to like make everyone friends again because he's clearly not so pro-Russian that he's going to like want to recreating the Soviet Union or something. Um, so it's it's a really complicated one and lots of different people seem to have very different views on what this means. And yeah, that makes me think that no one really knows. I'm really looking forward to seeing how closely he matches his like on-screen persona. He's not even the first person this year to get elected after playing like a senior political leader on TV. There's a Slovenian prime minister as well. He's exactly the same thing. He used to be an actor playing the president. Yeah, and that just doesn't feel right, does it? Maybe it's really good practice. I don't know. Maybe Martin Sheen should become president next. I mean, yeah, I maybe would be behind that because I do think President Bartlett was great. Although, actually, I think if I watch The West Wing again now, he'd seem like a total centrist dad. Back in the <laughs> 90s, he felt like a real like progressive leader. But Times have changed. Who's it been a bad week for, Katie? Uh, It's been a bad week for the island of Cyprus, where there were some really horrible revelations this week. A man has confessed to killing seven women and girls, all of them of foreign descent. We don't have all the details yet, but the victims appear to include three Filipino women, one of the women's daughters, and a Romanian mom and her daughter, and a woman of Indian or Nepalese descent. It's just horrible. And there's a lot of anger against the authorities. Uh, They've been accused of not properly investigating the disappearance of these women because they were foreign. Catherine a local news website, issued an apology to the families of these women on behalf of the whole country and saying that these killings had been encouraged by a state and a society that were becoming more and more xenophobic. 
Local migrants' rights activists have complained that migrant workers don't really get the same rights as native Cypriots, which is a situation that I think we can all recognise all over the world. Filipino women in particular, a lot of them come to Cyprus to work as domestic helpers and in kind of service jobs. There's about 14,000 Filipino nationals living on the island overall. And there's a tendency, it seems, to treat them as invisible because they clean people's houses and they do other low-paid jobs like that. The suspect is Greek Cypriot. The island, of course, is divided in half. The southern bit has an internationally recognised government, which is run by Greek Cypriots, and the north bit is run by a Turkish Cypriot government, which only Turkey recognises. And the suspect is an army officer. He has confessed to killing seven women and girls, and at the time of recording, the authorities have found three bodies, and there's a massive ongoing search for the others. But it's a really dark time on what is usually a really peaceful, beautiful island. Uh, less than a million people live in Cyprus and it has really low crime rates normally. They've certainly never seen any serial killing like this. So people have been really, really shocked about this and really, really angry. Yeah, that's really grim. It's one of those stories that if you weren't talking about it, I just would never have clicked on the link to find out anything about it, to my shame. Yeah, but, I mean, locally, it's causing a big impact. Hundreds of people came out to a rally in honour of the victims on Friday. So I hope at least at this really horrible time will be a wake-up call that migrant women doing low-paid jobs, that shouldn't make them invisible. They're not second-class citizens. They deserve to have their voices heard. Yeah. Let's talk about Das Bauhaus. Yeah, let's talk Bauhaus. Um, Bauhaus is celebrating its centenary this month of April, a hundred years since Walter Gropius founded this extraordinary art school, initially in Weimar, later moving to Dessau and then to Berlin. Bauhaus translates as building house, and this to-the-point name is indicative of the simplicity that was key to this school, which explored the overlap between simplicity and beauty. It was extraordinary for its aim also at bringing together like all the different art forms, be it design, architecture, fine art, or even dance. The school only existed for 14 years, closing after pressure from the Nazi regime in 1933, but the influence that this school has had on arts and architecture in particular has been enormous. One artist who's been inspired by the Bauhaus is the American painter Henry Isaacs, who has a pretty special personal connection to the key figures of the Bauhaus. He grew up surrounded by many of the famous names from the school due to his father's friendship with Walter Gropius, the founder of the Bauhaus school, who had left Germany for America. His father actually ended up writing the first biography of Gropius. We called up Henry to talk about his not uncomplicated feelings around Bauhaus and Gropius in particular. What are your earliest memories of having Walter Gropius around in your life as a child? <laughs> I guess what I remember are their accents. <laughs> mm. My mother's family was Austrian, and they were Jewish, and they were Yiddish speakers. And, of course, not so many survived the Holocaust. And these men and women from the Bauhaus, they sounded so different, and I couldn't understand that they were speaking a similar language to my mother. Simple things like that. You know, they were friends. They were people who sat at dinner tables. They were nice. I remember Herbert Beyer being a very kind, generous man. Ah, the font designer. Who would bring presents. <laughs> Presents went a long way to a four-year-old and a five-year-old, right? 
it was later that I learned to have likes and dislikes that were based perhaps on other kinds of things. Gropius had quite an extraordinary house, didn't he? He built it to prove a point. He wanted to show that one could build a house that had some aesthetics to it that could be built with quite accessible, reasonably priced materials without the kinds of mansions that were being built in the local fancy communities around Boston. So instead of extraordinary woodwork, he would go to hardware stores and get ready-made locks and handles and things like that. In post-war America, those kinds of assembly line products were becoming more available, and he wanted to show that these kinds of things were quite possible to be used with an eye to aesthetics and used with an affordable eye. But what was it like actually being in that house? Well, I felt that it was quite cold. You know, I would spend the night there more nights than I can possibly remember. I felt that the furniture was quite uncomfortable. <laughs> I couldn't understand why they didn't have more cushions and comfortable <laughs> sofas and things like that. I, I never found it very pretty. Having said that, are there aspects of the Bauhaus school uh, and the way of doing things that have made their own way into your practice as an artist? Yes. I separate the Bauhaus between architecture and the entire rest of the school. What remains with me is the tremendous disparity between what we continue to call today the fine arts and the architecture areas. Even the design areas were more humanistic, more humane in the desire to make a architecture that appealed to a kind of mass culture. They lost the person. They lost the individual. If you're familiar with somebody like Gerhard Marx or Feininger, the line that they use to describe human form or landscape, just those two artists, is so beautiful, so personal and descriptive, so luscious. It's extraordinary how sensual their work is in such sharp contrast to the architecture. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to see the relationship of my color to Clay and Kandinsky and Feininger. Some of those people, and especially their heirs and children, were my teachers. And whether I like it or not, it stuck with me all these years. Thank you, Henry, for taking the time to talk to us across the seas. Henry is a painter of many very beautiful, vivid landscapes. If you want to check out his work, 
and compare it to your favourite Bauhaus artists, why not? You can do so at henryisaacs.com. Where do you lie, Katie, on the comfort versus clean simplicity spectrum? Do you like the sound of Gropius's house? My house doesn't definitely doesn't look very Bauhaus. It doesn't have any clean lines at all. It's just full of junk. Um, I like the idea of being a bit more Bauhaus in the way that I live. It's an ongoing battle between me and my husband. He loves really clean lines and hard wooden furniture didn't he try and buy you that really uncomfortable sofa once just because it looked really good yeah we literally spent about six months looking for a sofa because we were trying to find a compromise between something that looked nice and something that felt nice to sit on oh man um because he doesn't care about it feeling nice to sit on so he'd probably love to live in gropius's house and in fact he is working just next to weimar at the moment and today this very moment he is attending this big uh, Bauhaus centenary exhibition that is in Weimar. And I'm going to visit him next week and I'm also probably going to go and see it. So maybe I'm going to be a Bauhaus expert this time next week. You're going to come back uber Bauhaus. I am. Just you wait. Confusingly, I'm actually going to Brussels twice in two weeks. Um, So today I'm going up so we can not win a prize, as mentioned. I'm also going to Brussels on May the 7th because some people have asked me to moderate a panel. I finally get to hold a microphone somewhere that isn't this bedroom. So that's very exciting. That is very exciting. Are you nervous? A little bit. Talking in front of people. Anyway, I'll worry about that later. So it's a really cool event. It's an event run every year by Live Europe. They're the organization behind some of your fave music venues in Europe. Sala Bolo in Barcelona, Vega in Copenhagen, Village Underground in London, and Milkveg in Amsterdam. Do you hang out on Milkveg? Yeah, I've been there a few times. It's a nice place. I actually went there in the first ever week that I moved to Amsterdam. Oh, and then you stopped because you're old and lame. Yeah, I was young back then. Anyway, Live Europe have kindly agreed to sponsor us for the next few weeks um, ahead of this really cool event where I'll be speaking. Every May, they organise a concert celebrating European music and how diverse it is. And there are talks about European stuff. And the guy who gets me in charge of the music is Kurt Overberg. So I gave him a quick call earlier this week to talk about the kinds of acts that he's lined up to celebrate the best and most diverse acts around Europe and what I should be listening to in general. Uh, you are the artistic director of the Ancienne Belgique, which is one of the coolest music venues in Brussels. Are you retiring anytime soon? Can I can I have your job? <laughs> well, I've been working here for about 20 years right now, and I'm not actually thinking about retiring at the moment, uh, simply because this is uh, such a lovely place to work. Um, the music business, although I don't like to call it a business, keeps you young. Um, we're actually, since the last couple of years, we've been doing so many projects like in creating ourselves uh, from scratch, um, working out ideas. If it's not about Billy Holiday, then we're strongly working on his gender equality or strongly working on diversity from uh, uh, musicians all over the world that I don't think about quitting yet so far. So I'm so sorry that I made you mad. <laughs> Never mind. I thought it was worth a try anyway. So that's cool. I mean, you have an agenda beyond just putting on great shows. So that's that's really nice to see. Um, it's a really historic venue, like amazing people who have played there. Jacques Brel played there. The Cure had a fight on stage i believe and coming up you have a lot of interesting shows on the schedule but the one that i'm interested in mostly because i'm going to be there is on may the 7th when there are a whole bunch of particularly interesting turkish flavored acts playing um can you tell me a little bit about them 
Yes. So first of all, the um, the last couple of years there's been a big revival of the Turkish psychedelic scene that was very active in the 60s and the 70s. And if you ask me what is the Turkish psychedelic scene, then it's basically what uh, the influence of Pink Floyd on Turkish music at that time. Mm-hmm. And that was a movement that has been very uh, political, actually. Uh, they were quite active against uh, the government at that time. And a beautiful example is Selda, uh, who's um, over 70 years old, and she ended up in prison for about uh, four times uh, because she was rather political in her being and her presence. And so Last year, we invited her at the AB, and we had over 1,000 people, which is uh, quite an amazing turnout. And a lot of people from Turkish origin uh, came to the concert, and it was one of the most beautiful concerts I've ever seen, basically, at AB. And this inspired us to, uh, to work on more Turkish psychedelic nights. But what's happening, and what is a really uh, intriguing thing about this, is that the acts that, for example, on May the 7th that were presenting, they're basically acts that have Turkish roots, but are musicians uh, that are part of the Turkish diaspora. So uh, some of them went to Denmark and formed with local musicians a band. Uh, the other ones went to uh, Cologne in Germany and formed a local band, and thus had local influences, which means they all came out uh, with a different, not a classical, typical Turkish psychedelic sound, but with influences from all over Europe. And this sort of marks, for me, the new way of musicians, but the new way of making music, and sort of an outer nationality. So it's not one band that comes out of one city and brings out a sound. No, it's like a very international sound. And I think that is so important to promote because this is so completely the opposite of what uh, politicians think. They should raise borders and build walls, like Trump, for example, in America, between Mexico and the southern part of America. So it's, it's, this is sort of a, a fuck you to, to the politicians in a way. Uh, but on the other side, it, this is like pure uh, reality, and that's what we're trying to represent. Uh, thank you, Turkish psychedelic musicians all over the world. I think it's kind of interesting that all of this amazing music and the way that it fuses cultures together is a direct consequence of immigration really and the fact that we have had different communities all moving to Europe the fact that it's given us amazing Turkish infused music in Denmark and like African inspired hip hop in France and all of these different things I think it's really nice just to celebrate that just for once yeah absolutely and in a way it's a cliche but uh, you know what they say about the cliches there is always a, a big truth in, this, in the cliche so and that comes with this evening as well it's like a uh, Music is a common language, and this is the perfect example of what's going to happen on May the 7th. First of all, we have a very nice opener called Hudna, so a band coming from um, from Denmark. There's like Turkish roots in that band, Danish roots in that band, and even Moroccan-Israeli roots in that band. They already played at the Roskilde Festival. And then the other band is like Electro Hafiz. Uh, it's a guy coming from Turkey, but now lives in Cologne, uh, has formed a band with local people from Cologne. But there's even a more intriguing thing. We have a, um, a female DJ who's spinning Turkish records in between uh, and afterwards to party. Um, uh, it's actually a Polish lady who went to Istanbul to make the other way around uh, because her love for Turkish music uh, send, did send her over to Istanbul where she's living right now. So you have all those different ways of uh, yeah, people traveling and this all makes a great night of music, uh, I'm pretty sure. You are obviously a man who has his finger on the pulse musically. 
who should I be listening to from Belgium and who should I be listening to from Europe in general? Like, who are your favorite up and coming acts? Wow, it's um, uh, European music. Two, maybe two things that I want to mention. There's an amazing scene uh, in Portugal based around the Principi label, it's a label based in uh, Lisboa. And they bring sort of a, a grime version, so the more radical rap version of, of what's happening in uh, in London. But they completely do it in their Portuguese way. But there's a lot, a lot of stuff happening. The jazz scene lately in London, all based around the Shabaka Hutchings. And whatever he does, whatever he touches, he's for me the new John Coltrane. John Coltrane, of course, is like uh, the biggest uh, musician of all times uh, everywhere in the world around. And you can't debate about that with me. So. <laughs> those are two intriguing scenes uh, in Europe that uh, for me you have to pay a lot of attention to and when you come to which Belgian band should I uh, check as well there's a lot of uh, good stuff happening in the Belgian jazz scene and in the more radical uh, underground scene here so when you uh, talk about uh, bands like uh, Taxi Wars for example uh, Taxi Wars is a band to look out for from Belgium for sure so Katie, listeners living in Brussels, to clarify, they can actually come and see you in the flesh. Can you tell them the date and time and place of where they should go? Yes, I can. You're talking Bauhaus again. Thank you. So the event is called Crack the Code and it's on May 7th at the Ancienne Belgique. It is from three o'clock until 10 o'clock. And I'm talking sometime in the afternoon. I'm not actually sure yet, but I will yet let you know. And yeah, if you're a listener to the pod, come up and say hi. I'd love to see you. It's almost a live podcast episode. Except you're not there. Thank goodness. Listeners, Katie sent me the happy ending this week. Yes, there was a news story that managed to melt her cold heart. So brace yourself, everyone. So harsh. Yeah, well, you're always mean to me, so I'm trying I'm gonna try being mean to you for a bit. Fair enough. This story comes from Sweden, where a businessman, which actually sidebar, why do news reports always talk to people as just like a businessman? Does anyone define themselves as a businessman as their job? I regularly introduce myself to people as a businesswoman. Yeah, which you are now. I am. Well, anyway, there was a businessman. He was going on a trip abroad for three days from Sweden. And whilst he was in his taxi, he realised that he'd left his wallet at home. Nightmare. He was too far away from home to go back and pick it up without missing his flight. But he needed money to be able to pay for things whilst he was away in Germany for the work trip. The taxi driver at this point offered to do something that many people would think is beyond generous, perhaps foolish even, but certainly incredibly kind for a virtual stranger. He offered to lend the businessman his credit card for the trip, along with the pin code, obviously. And the businessman was so, like, taken aback by this driver's kindness and gratefully took the card with him and returned it at the airport three days later when he returned along with the money that he had spent. I'm kind of conflicted about whether I should highlight that the taxi driver was Turkish-born living in Sweden um, because I don't want to make it about where he's from. But also, I guess it's important to flag up stories that show that immigrants can be a really nice addition to society. Do you think that's fair? I think that's really fair. So that story was actually written by my friend Ilgin, who works for the BBC. She is Turkish-Swedish and she was like really happy about this story. So I think it's a great thing to celebrate. Yeah, especially in a country like Sweden where the far right have been doing really well 
electorally and fueled by their animosity towards immigrants largely and general suspicion of foreigners. So yeah, I guess it's important to keep telling stories like this whether they feature foreign-born people or not. Um, and acts of kindness are just nice to hear about. And they inspire us, hopefully, to strive to be kinder to our other human beings. Even your local bells are celebrating behind you there, Dominic. They sure are. I'm sorry, I now feel bad that I was mean to you and said you had a cold heart <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> I knew I'd prove you wrong eventually. No, it's, it's actually still very cold underneath. You just warmed it up by a, a degree or two. It's ironic because I'm the actual one with a cryogenically frozen heart. Your heart is like literally frozen. Well, some little bits of it. I had a heart procedure, which yeah froze bits of my heart a few years ago. Oh. So. so if we talk about melting your heart, that could actually be maybe life-threatening for you. Exactly. So please don't do that. Right, I need to get to the station. Let's do this again next week when we'll either be celebrating or commiserating probably the latter, you can send us sympathetic messages on a range of social media platforms. Twitter, at Europeans Pod. Instagram, Europeans Podcast. And on Facebook, just type in the Europeans Podcast. The other way you can cheer us up is by supporting us on Patreon. I'm sorry we talk about this so much, but we try only to talk about it at the end of the episode. And we are really grateful to those of you that are already supporting us. Special thanks this week to our newest Patreon supporter, Carl Johan Ulvenash. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast and chip in as little as $1 a month to help us out and cheer us up after we don't win the prize. Yay! Which, actually, by the time this comes out, we might have actually won the prize, in which case you can still help us out, but <laughs> um, I just don't want to like falsely guilt trip you into supporting us. Ah, I'll stop talking. Stop talking, let's go. Train well. Thank you. We'll see you next week, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs>